The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Um, at this time, um, I'm going to be reading our scripture for us, but I want to, um, as we continue in our worship together, um, I am uh, enjoying looking at the book of Acts, and pretty soon we'll leave Acts and go into our Advent season. Um, but one of the things about um, this time of year, and I don't know if you remember those days, but uh, when you studied Greek mythology, do you remember studying that in class? Um, it was always kind of a fun thing to study when you, I always enjoyed it, I thought it was kind of interesting and um, and, and, and such, and, and my son, who, uh, seventh grade son, who's went through some of that recently and studied some of that, and uh, you know, all the stories and all the things, and one of the things that is interesting about Greek mythology is uh, when we talk about the uh, manuscripts that have been handed down that are ancient manuscripts, uh, there are two that are consistently highlighted as the oldest of manuscripts, and we have numbers of those that are handed. One is, um, is the Bible. It's been handed down, number of copies, thousands upon thousands, over 5,000 certain copies that interlace and lock that have been handed down over a number of centuries and years and millennia. The other, book, the other is the Odyssey. I don't know if you knew this, but the Odyssey, the Iliad and the Odyssey is actually, uh, Homer's work is one of the oldest uh, comprised, and it has a, a few hundred copies passed down, but it's one of the oldest works um, that has been um, passed down through the centuries. It's in- interesting to study. I don't know if you remember reading the Iliad and the Odyssey. But if you study what was behind the Iliad and the Odyssey, so it was like a lot of poetical stories about, uh, you know, uh, voyages and, um, and how, the, you know, man could, uh, you know, fight against certain beasts and, the, and, and overcome the things that the gods throw at them. And uh, really interesting story, kind of fun to read. I'm sure they've made a million movies about it. One of the things about that that was controversial when the Iliad and the Odyssey actually first came out centuries ago when Homer wrote them was how much it actually pitted the fact that, that men could overcome or could actually push against anything the gods threw at them, lower G gods. <clears throat> so in other words, that it was in man's hands to take what they could and live this life no matter what the gods did. Now, it's interesting that when you read that and then you read what the Bible talks about, in fact, the Bible actually says something very unique and different. And in fact, often the Lord in passages will flip that idea on on its head. You'll see many times in the Old Testament, whether it's a, a, a major figure like Abraham or David or someone of that nature, thinking that this is the way God's character is, that, oh, if I, if I do my part, then he'll do his part. Or if I kind of overcome here, then he'll grant this. But God consistently shows that his character is markedly different from anything else. That he is all-powerful, all-sovereign, he is in control, and yet he is more loving and involved in his people's lives. And that we don't, there's not a meritocracy when it comes to God. 
There's not a striving against. And it's interesting, I'm about to read a passage for you that's gonna actually stir up some things that maybe you remember from your Greek Iliad Odyssey kind of days, because it's about a shipwreck. Uh, it's, 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 it, we've been spending a lot of time in Acts looking at courtrooms where Paul has been in a courtroom setting, and now he's on a ship, he's about to go to uh, Rome, and it's, it's now a shipwreck because Luke is wanting us to see how does, how does Paul's travel to Rome display even God's hand and power within that? What does it look like? Because when we start talking about God's sovereignty and his power, even that word, sometimes we can go real ideological and theological. And I love that kind of stuff too. I love sitting in a coffee shop and saying, okay, let's unpack passages and talk about you know, all the philosophical and theological and biblical things that sovereignty of God pulls up. You know what, you know what Luke does when he does this in Acts? And Paul's life reveals? He says, uh-uh. When we talk about God's sovereignty, when we look at it, the boots on the ground have everything to do with how do you live in it? How do you have assurance in this life? That's what it connects to. It's not about having a bunch of discussions. It's about how do you actually believe that God is sovereign and that it drives home an assurance in your life to where you can live in the most difficult of circumstances and places, and yet you can actually trust that you're known and loved? That is a huge question. So we're gonna look at this passage, and you're gonna hear it in a second, of our assurance and what it means to live in assurance. Hear this from Acts chapter 27. I'm gonna start in verse 20. I'm gonna read this section from 20 to verses 38. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay upon us, all hope of our being saved was last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men. For I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. When the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. And as day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take food, saying, 
today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. For these things, hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. And then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were all, in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out wheat into the sea. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. You know, just a reminder, as Luke writes, he's an interviewer and he's a historian. And Luke is the one who, as I mentioned, wrote the Gospel of Luke. So if you think about Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, he wrote Luke as a volume one to talk about the narrative accounts of Jesus. And in Acts, his volume two, he writes a narrative account of how does this small thing called the gospel go out into the world? How does it go out into the whole world extending this good news to every corner? How in the world does it get to where it is? (laughs) And that's what Acts is about. And what he does here, and he'll do this from time to time when he writes, is he'll write about a certain narrative in Acts. But from time to time, you'll see the pronouns change. And I don't know if you caught it in this one. You hear the pronouns change here, and he starts using the we. And that's to let you know that he's not just writing this because he interviewed. He's writing this because he was on that ship seasick himself. He uses the words we over and over and over, and he counts himself in that 276 persons. So Luke narrating this account is not just someone as a bystander asking Paul what happened, but as someone who's there listening, who's there frightened, who's watching everything and giving the detail over and over. And as the passage begins, we've seen Paul in courtroom setting, but now as his court case has been taken to Rome, they say, get on a boat, let's go. And as you see, what happens is what's called a nor'easter comes, and this massive hurricane-type wind hits. And of all the things here, and you see it over and over, man, they use every ounce of their nautical wisdom to try and hold this thing together. I mean, they are, and, and, and that's what's amazing about what Luke gives in detail, is it talks about the fathoms. You're like, fathoms? Why do I need to know about fathoms? Just tell me the boat's falling apart. But he wants you to know, oh, I saw them put the cables underneath the bow of the ship trying to tie the, the boards together. He wants you to know that they dropped anchors to try and hang this thing, almost like brakes on a ship just to hold it that this must have been such a horrible storm over not just a day or two, but two weeks, that it shook all of their lives. Like I, uh, my, my in-laws are here in town. I mentioned this this, this morning too. And um, I've sailed before. I'm not a master sailor, but I remember when I was uh, at the beach, I was able to uh, take a small catamaran out and I took uh, my father-in-law and uh, my wife is on the boat with us. And uh, it was a, one of those double red days, you know, they have the flags out there or whatever, and or it was a red, yellow, or whatever it was, and it was bad. Whatever it was, it was the waves, this is what I remember. And I'm pushing this thing out, and they're sitting on it, and I'm like, oh, I've got this, I'll take y'all out. And, the, you know, the guy who let, it, let me take this catamaran out, and here I am, very confident, um, and very uh, cocky, as you will, pushing this boat out, 
And I can't, I'm having a hard time. I can't get it past the breakers. Like, there's that bad. And all of a sudden, you know, I realize my father-in-law is doubting, like, why did I let him marry her? Uh, my wife and I are arguing, you know, like, it's the f- beautiful thing that happens on the boat. Megan grabs some rope, and it just works. And, of course, I'm, like, hanging on the back going, I'm glad I helped you. And um, so I'm sitting here thinking of, like, this is, this is one moment of this. Imagine being caught in a storm so powerful that not only I felt incredibly out of control in that moment, but with all the nautical wisdom that they could contain with 270 plus people on this boat, they could not do anything about it over the course of a number of days. And if there's anything that happens in those moments, it tests your, what, what you really feel like you can do. And Paul stands up here and he says to them, men, verse 21, you should have listened to me and not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. Now at the moment, you could think of it as like some great movie where Paul stands up and says, we're gonna make it. But that's not what he does. He says, next, he says, take heart, but uh, there'll be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night, there stood before me an angel of God, whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told but we must run aground on some island. God brings him a word. Now for Paul, he doesn't have a Bible in his hand. That's not how it works. The Lord sends him an angel. But what we we gather in this moment, that Paul knows that an angel, as what an angel does in a messenger, doesn't give him some message that's far out or random, doesn't just say something, but it's in line with what Paul already knows, that the Lord is going to carry him beyond to exactly where he's to be in front of Caesar. Now, Paul had an angel. What we have is, is the Bible in front of us. But the question is, he's sitting here at word, and, and how does Paul feel so confident? How does he have assurance in this moment? What, what, is, what is this? He's trusting in what we would say God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty of what his hand is over. And when I say that again, I mention this, it's not just something of the the idea of that God is sovereign. And we run to things like predestination and election and those kind of things. But if you notice, the Bible here and over and over and over is not just talking about it in big ideas and concepts. Every time God's sovereignty comes into the picture, it always lands immediately with their assurance and their everyday life. That Paul is not standing up and giving them, notice, he doesn't say to them, let's have a discussion about God's sovereignty. (laughs) Do you realize also that this 276 persons minus Luke are all in this boat believing a very different kind of God than he does? They're thinking mythologically. They're thinking, the gods have thrown this at us. We got to figure this out and they can't do anything. And yet here is Paul saying that if God has us, how do we then live? 
if this God, as he says, that I, whom I worship and that whom I belong, notice he uses that word, the God in whom I belong and worship, that's a very different kind of language than what they would think. For most of us, I wonder if the question when it comes to God's sovereignty and his control in our life, how much we think of it is that we belong to him or is that he's interfering with us? Or that he's got this or, or, or I have this part and he has this part. See, God's sovereignty is not about him working with a bunch of robots. It's not determinism. God doesn't set up a relationship with us in order for us just to follow in a line, but to be in a relationship with us. You know what's been interesting lately? There's a whole new attitude I've noticed in um, that I've heard a lot of educators use this. So I'm thinking, wow, that's interesting. That a lot of middle school and high school students are using, they're saying, push against the I don't care. Now, I know there's an apathy kind of drive, but there's this, this I don't care idea. So if something bad happens, there's an, I don't care. If there's, an, if there's a good thing that happens, it's an, I don't care. And I've heard a lot of educators use this in, uh, even when we go to like, um, you know, big, broad parent meetings of how do, we, how do we lean in, make sure that students care, but how do we do that? What's really happening when we say that I don't care? Well, we're, we're, we can protect ourselves. We're guarding ourselves from any disappointment. We're also not only guarding ourselves from any disappointment, but we're also losing any way of engaging in love or, or, or relationship. And what we're really doing is guarding when the fact that we encounter any shame and guilt and difficulty in our, our world. That's where we feel like, well, God is sovereign. He must be punishing me. You know what most of these sailors on this boat were probably thinking is that God must be punishing us. And then here comes Paul to say, take courage. God has you. The God in whom I belong, who has me, will have you. If you ever wondered how discussion about deep theology of God's sovereignty happens with a bunch of people who don't even believe in the Bible, this is how it works. Because God is active. He cares in the moment. He's not just winding the clock and letting it go. There is this ancient idea that maybe God is just setting it and we just kind of plot our course. I remember being in college and sitting and having discussions at lunch about this and people talking about there's an A and a B and God, God sets the A and the B, but your course is you just kind of get wherever you want to go, but you'll get to the B eventually. But if you think about how comforting is that? Maybe you'll get there. But what Paul is saying is that no, 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 no. This isn't about you plotting your course. And, and, and yes, Paul has extensive wisdom in nautical life. In fact, he's charted over 35,000 nautical miles himself. So is his, is his idea of standing up and saying, take courage, we got this. And then a shark comes and eats him? I mean, what, what is this? Is this a, pre, a pep talk or is he... Is he driving home the reality that he belongs to someone, that someone is so sovereign, so above, so a part of this, and yet is so caring for him that he is in a deep, profound relationship with him? 
See, his assurance comes into living in the assurance. Listen to this. This is what I think is profound about this passage. Verse 27, when the 14th night had come, imagine that. As we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. And here's what was the problem. They had no idea. Remember, I read this at the very beginning. It, it said in verse 20, neither sun nor stars appeared for many days. If you were a sailor, the thing that you needed were the sun and the stars because you didn't know which way was east or west or which way to go. You needed those for your direction. You also needed them to understand the duration of time. Can you imagine? It was so dark, they had a hard time understanding what was the time of day. But even on top of that, it sounds that for 14 days, these sailors over and over were covered by something so large, so powerful, they couldn't determine their way through. And if there is something that we are really good at, it is trying to determine our way through. Yeah, yeah, God is in control. He's got this. But wait, I've got to determine my way through. I got this. See, Paul steps in their surroundings and says, look, take courage. He shows incredible confidence. But is it for him to show confidence in what he knows and what he can do or in who he belongs? There was an article that came out some time ago in um, Newsweek, and I thought it was interesting, about worship and religion in America. Because I think this gets to the heart of a lot of what... <clears throat> Uh, many of us may think faith is. Said American faiths have long been characterized by creativity and individualism. That's the secret to their success. Rather than being about a God that commands you, it's about finding religion that empowers you. So here's a question though. Is, is that what Christianity is? Is that what it means to be in relationship with the Lord? See, you could look at this passage and see Paul standing up saying, take courage to a bunch of people who don't think of God in the same way he does. Just to say, take courage, come on. You got the empowering them, giving them something. Or you could see it and understand that he knows something far more than that. See, here's the real question. The real question is this. We can talk about how much we believe in God and trust him. And even even say, if we're those kind of people that in a place, uh, in a church like ours that really comes from a, a, a theological background, we love to talk about those major treatises and those big things like sovereignty of God. But here's the thing. What he says to them when he says this, he says, as they were seeking, as the sailors were seeking to escape the ship, and they had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of leaving, laying the anchors about, uh, from the bow. Paul said to them, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. It is one thing to believe in the sovereignty of God when everything's going well. It's another thing when you're told to stay in what everything is falling apart. 
when there is no amount of control that you have and there is nothing like losing every ounce of agency that you think you have to make you ask, do I really believe that God is not only sovereign, but that I belong to him? That he really has me? That his sovereignty isn't about this idea that we love to talk about, but it really is about the assurance that we live in from day to day in our circumstances? To live in where the boat is falling apart, can you imagine? These guys have been on this. They have a very good lifeboat that is not falling apart. And Paul says, you gotta cut that off unless you stay in the boat. That Remember he said already, the ship will be lost, but none of you will. And every board of the ship is falling apart. So much so that that's what they float on. Not even the cables can hold it. And yet this is where they're supposed to be. What assures you that God has you? The assurance we have is this. This is what's so different about God being sovereign and also belonging to him is that if God himself can come and say that the gods of this earth can't beat the greatest enemy that you have, that is death, which is what everyone on this ship is facing. God proves it himself by saying, I will show you how much in control I am so that you know how much you belong to me because I will not only come into this world and suffer the circumstances that you have, but I will actually go to death, the greatest enemy that you have, and beat it so that you can know that there's nothing that you can go through in this world and life that I have not myself, and not only that, but overcome. That's assurance. Do you know what's beautiful about this? It's not just the circumstances. He finishes by saying this. (laughs) He says in verse 33, and it's almost humorous. He says, as the day was about to dawn, Paul urged them to take some food, saying today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food having taken nothing. And commentators say it's not because they didn't have food, it's because they were so seasick they had not eaten. And that Paul prepares a meal for them, just with bread, a common what was called fellowship meal, to gather them and to feed them to know that what are they? They're dependent. What is it when we, when we take a moment to know that it means that God gives us the everyday things? I know that we get so used, and I know we could go back to the COVID years, but even before that and after, when there's something that's not on the shelf that we need, or if there's a recall of some sort of food that we're looking for, it, it should immediately remind us, oh yeah, we... There's a chain of dependence here. <laughs> I remember we were at our house a year ago, year and a half ago, and there was some sort of issue with garbage trucks in our neighborhood, and they could not pick up the garbage for like two weeks. And we were like trying to hard, hide bags around the corner. Like, we're <laughs> like, where do we put this one? Like, <laughs> you just shove it over here. So at least it wasn't seen. It could be smelled, but not seen. I mean, it was just piled up. 
Why is it that the Lord Jesus, when he teaches us to pray, he says, give us our day, our daily bread? Why does he want us to do that? It's to acknowledge that in not just the big concepts, but your very small life dependencies are upon God's hand. And that we can delight in the assurance we have of what he gives us even in that moment. And he finishes, he, he quotes something here, and this is very, very cool of what Luke does. He not only says, take some food for it'll give you some strength, he finishes by saying, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. Paul quotes Jesus, and he quotes him from Luke's previous book. Luke chapter 12, verses four through seven says this. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I warn, will warn you whom to fear. Fear him after he has killed, has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why even the hairs of your head are all numbered? Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. Paul takes it to exactly where it belongs. Don't fear the one that your body can be taken. Fear the one who has control over your body and soul. And guess what? He not only has control, he cares for them. Jesus could have stopped in that statement and said, he has the authority to cast both body and soul into hell. He doesn't, guess where he goes? Straight to the value question. Why do you fear? Because we don't know if we belong. We don't know if we have assurance of who really has this. How do we know? Look at this table. It's set perfectly to answer that question. This is a sovereign table. There is nothing about this table other than you walk up, you hold it, and take it, which is a part of your work because God wants to be in relationship with you, that you can make work for you. You see, this, this table is set with Jesus' body and blood. It's not set by me. It's not set by you. There's nothing you can come up and muster enough feeling or, or, or think on enough or have just the perfect theology to make this table effective. You know what makes this table effective? God's hand. He feeds you with his son. And yet he calls you forward to take it, to rub shoulders next to others who are just like you that wonder, do I have assurance? I'm in a ship that is falling apart completely in my life. How do you trust? Because Jesus is the one who came into this world and guess what? He was torn apart by our sin so that you may have salvation. You may find refuge you may find yourself in him. And that is all the assurance you need. And guess what? One day, and you'll hear me say this in a second, one day, 
The word assurance won't even come from our mouths. We will have so much of it and be living in it fully. We won't even be thinking about it because you're tasting your future. You're tasting what's to come. We're about to stand in a minute and read from a a very ancient catechism. It's called the Heidelberg Catechism. And I really want you to pay attention because it uses those words we just said. Where do you belong? And who has your, even the hairs on your head numbered? Who has you? Let's stand together.